Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. So folks, this is part two of our podcast last week with some additional questions and answers with Bruno O'Brien from the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility about all things ESG. So, Bryn, thanks for joining us again for additional questions. There were so many fabulous questions last week that we couldn't answer them all, so we're picking up the additional ones now. So, Gretchen asks, how much does, a, does public sentiment play into board actions or lack of action of a board? Oh, look, I think to quite um, a great extent, I guess it depends on what kind of business, but most businesses um, and most boards are sensitive to what the public thinks of, of, their, of their business. I think we, we really uh, saw a kind of outpouring of, of anger and, and grief after Rio Tinto's destruction of the Duke and Gorge case, and I think the board didn't respond appropriately to that outpouring and then the rage grew and ultimately uh, they did have to uh, take action with, you know, the exit of a bunch of senior executives. Uh, you know, similarly on climate change, the major fresh food retailers, Woolworths and Coles, have been quite aggressive in their decarbonisation of their kind of their, their stores, their physical assets, because their customers are, are demanding it of them and because there is an opportunity for them to, to show leadership. On the other side... AGL uh, have said quite publicly that the way they were, I guess, bashed up um, by the Turnbull government at the time for announcing the closure of their Liddell coal-fired power plant has bruised them very badly. So mm-hmm. that kind of political sentiment is, is absolutely relevant to how boards are, are responding to ESG issues. But I guess in the climate space, what I would emphasise is Public sentiment is a, is a lagging indicator. The public sentiment is lagging behind the science right now. So clever boards will look at where public sentiment is as an absolute minimum floor and then go much, much harder than, than that. Um, I think the general public really has not absorbed just how urgent the challenge is and just how big it is. So 
it is incumbent on boards to show to show leadership and go beyond that public minimum. The next question doesn't have a name next to it. So how do we move boards or company attention from short-term issues to longer-term transformative quality conversations? You know, just a little one there, Bryn, if you can just give us, you know, the if you can give us the answer, the magic wand, that'd be awesome. Well, uh, look, I think it's there are lots of questions in the last part of the podcast about all of the different strategies um, that, that boards can use. So um, remuneration, advocacy, really understanding the science, having good information. It's kind of all of the above, uh, I think. It, it is a deep awareness of the challenges that we face and a focus on the future. It is de-linking, I guess, perverse incentives, so short-term incentives to where they come into conflict with long-term objectives around decarbonisation. I guess it, it takes a fundamental kind of mindset shift and, and, and commitment of boards to, to do it. I also think listening to that wide range of stakeholders, particularly if you know, it's a listed company, their major investors will be long-term investors. They'll be investing over the term mm. of the working life and superannuation funds in particular can have some very sensible long-term insights around the management of, of long-term risks, but also, you know, as, as was discussed in, in the last round, listening to young people, really mm-hmm. taking their, their views seriously, really taking that, them into account as a key stakeholder group, I think could really benefit boards. So next question, do we need a different board composition to have long-term focused conversations? Do we need climate change specialists on the board? Bit of a Dorothy Dixon there, I'm guessing your answer is yes, but what are your reflections there, Bryn? Look, I, I think it depends on the on the kind of business or board composition. I, I don't think every mm-hmm. business needs a climate change expert on the, on the board. And in some cases, I mean, climate change expertise can be sourced externally. And what a business might need is, I guess, change management or transformation experience. So if I were an, an oil and gas company, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd probably, you know, like, yes, I'd get a climate expert on on my board or I'd get some really uh, high-quality integrated uh, external expertise. But really what I would be looking at is either I would be looking for the skills that will assist me in the the challenges ahead, which is either they've got a choice to make, transform the business, do something different, don't pull Mm. hydrocarbons out of the ground and sell them anymore, so transformation or wind down. So you might need expertise on your board that uh, is focused on decommissioning assets responsibly. You know, so, so in some cases it will be climate change uh, expertise. I certainly think for uh, for companies with large physical assets that would really be an advantage, but in some cases it will be other kinds of expertise, but certainly that kind of diversity of background, diversity of experience, diversity of thought, and looking for those kind of key strategic risks and how to get diverse expertise that can give new insights into those risk dimensions. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I tend to agree that we don't need a climate, you know, having a climate expert in the room is a bit like having the finance expert in the room and often means that everybody on the board might be tempted to outsource their responsibilities and their knowledge in that way to the inverted commas, the climate expert in the room, whereas it's a responsibility for all of us to have Absolutely. I, I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. You, you can't just switch off and, and defer to the, to the expert on on such kind of material strategic co- mm. topics. And and again, climate change is everything. Change. Yeah. It, climate change isn't just about physical asset risk. It's about transition. It's about systems risk. It's about how different stakeholder groups will be 
disproportionately affected. So all of the directors around the board table need to have an understanding of it. In some cases, yes, it's going to be helpful to have, you know, a really deep expert. But in other cases, the real expertise that you might need um, is expertise in serving a particular stakeholder group. So the next question is from Jenny Selway. And she's asking, how predominant are conversations regarding adaptive asset management strategy to protect an organisation from climate risk versus emission reductions and offsets? What are your thoughts there? It's dependent on the the business. And, you know, each company will have its own asset profile and its own idiosyncratic ways that climate change appears as material. So I think we've got to be looking at all of those risk dimensions and, and all of the opportunities as well. So, for example, you know, there's some companies on our in- index that really contribute massively to the, the causes of climate change. That, mm-hmm. And those companies, there's no kind of adaptive strategy that they can pursue. They, they really need to rapidly, aggressively decarbonise. Other companies will be able to, to look at the net positive benefit they can have, um, will be able to look at perhaps going to negative emissions. Depends on the company. So the next question is from, again, the fabulous Dominique Hess. How do we monitor, report and be transparent as part of policy, you know, that walking the talk? Yeah, I think it's, you know, having a really clear process. So having a place within within the board that, you know, climate risk or, or ESG risk is, is located, whether it's committee, whether it's individual with responsibility who reports back, whether it's getting external advice, having a, a process for that risk identification and a method for doing it, having the, the time in the board calendar to make mm. sure that it's, it's covered, not just kind of leaving it until the last minute. It's about building internal boardroom competence and confidence and capability and getting credible external advisors and then talking to a bunch of stakeholders, getting good advice, setting realistic but ambitious KPIs and then monitoring for those results. But I I do think having a a well-developed methodology and a transparent one so that you can get, get constant feedback, having not only dates in the calendar where climate risk is discussed, but having uh, regular review dates for how you, uh, you know, how you're executing on the commitment. All of these things are really important. Next question: How do we make sure the conversation allows for the moral dimension and the moral risk, not just the economic risk, on boards, especially when there are trade-offs? What are your thoughts there? Well, yeah, great question. The conversation must must allow for it. Again, climate change is is everything change. I know I sound like a, a broken record on this, but you know, some of the scenarios or most of the scenarios outlined in the recent IPCC working group report on the physical science are come with an almost unimaginable degree of distress and, and suffering and upheaval and death. Some of the scenarios, the trajectory that we are on is one of catastrophic impacts to people mm. in Australia, to people all over the world. It is of extreme deadly heat. It is of again, deadly precipitation, weather events. It is of over time sea level rise. It is of respiratory disease due to, to wildfires and bushfires. The moral and, and justice dimensions, I think, are already becoming obvious. It's a much richer conversation now kind of, you know, unfortunately, because the east coast of Australia has experienced catastrophic bushfires in the last couple of years, 
the moral dimensions and the justice dimensions of, of climate change are the ones that I think, you know, directors as human beings might have experienced. So I, I think it's just it's just making the point about it. I mean, I, I don't think the boardroom should be uh, a place for purely economic discussions. There's, there's, no, there's nothing in corporate law that suggests that acting in the best interests of the corporation requires only the consideration of, of economics. I mean, it, it, mm. the best interests of the, the organisation acting with care and diligence often requires consideration of the moral dimensions of risk. And it links to another question that's here in a way, exactly what you're saying. The question is around, is there a growing momentum on ASX boards away from that purely economic drive purpose as well? Is there that momentum happening in the ASX? The moral and economic dimensions of climate risk in particular are converging, and I should have said that in the answer to the last question as well. Like They're, they're not really that distinct from one another, although the way we speak about them is, is distinct and I'm a fan of using whatever argument is going to get me over the line um, with a particular individual or institution. So, look, there, there are parts of uh, of the ASX, you know, of Australian corporate culture that have no sensitivity towards these issues whatsoever. Still, very much part of the problem, but there are other parts where momentum is building, and I, and I would say on overall, momentum is certainly building in the right direction. It's just that the incumbent industries and institutions, you know, the mining industry, uh, particularly the coal mining sector, the oil and gas industry, they occupy such an enormous, they have enormous resources, they are expert at deploying them, and they have enormous political power. So there is a small vocal minority, which is holding back progress and momentum for the rest of the business community. Rachel's question is around your views on measurement of the success of companies for ESG funds where there is a lack of agreed common standards. Does this lead to greenwashing? Yeah, I certainly think it's pretty loose out there in the ESG commitments, monitoring and marketing world, I would say. So I do think they're, you know, there are risks. I guess my advice to people trying to discharge these responsibilities within corporations is that Ultimately, you know, greenwashing or, or, or other kind of fudging will, will be found out. Consumers, customers, stakeholders are getting increasingly sophisticated. And hopefully there will be a moment where regulators, and certainly in the climate space, I think the courts will be taking a much more mm-hmm. proactive interest in assessing whether company commitments, particularly around decarbonisation targets, are supported by evidence or whether they contravene provisions of the consumer law and the corporation's law mm. against misleading and deceptive conduct. So, I mean, the, the, the most recent opinion, the, the 2021 opinion of Noel Hutley um, SC on directors' duties in climate change really pointed quite directly to this, this risk that if directors are found by a regulator or, or a court to have been greenwashing, then there will be legal consequences for them. So the next question is, and I'll confess I don't know exactly what this question means, but I'm hoping that you do, Bryn. It says, New Zealand and the UK are planning to legislate for TCFD. Asterix, I don't know what that is, but you're going to tell me in a minute. Should Australia do this as well, or are current arrangements for directors' responsibility and disclosure enough? So firstly, what is TCFD, and then what should we do with it? So TCFD stands for the Task Force T 
on climate-related, C, financial disclosures, F and D, um, an initiative of the Financial Stability Board, kind of lots of well-respected people from business and boffins came together, I think it was 2015, and developed this reporting framework to guide companies to ask the right questions, make sure they're covering off all of the relevant data sets and then reporting on those uh, to their stakeholders and shareholders in a kind of standardised way. So TCFD, Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. So as the questioner says, some other jurisdictions are legislating uh, around mandatory disclosure. This has been a live conversation about whether Australia should do this since about 2016, 2017. We're not going to get it under, under this government. I mean, they have no, no interest in, in increasing corporate Australia's focus on these issues. Would corporate Australia benefit from it? Absolutely. <laughs> Would Australian society and Australian companies in the global marketplace benefit from this? Absolutely. I mean, it's a it, it really is a no-brainer at this stage. I'd almost go so far as to say for certain classes of companies, particularly emissions-intensive major listed equities, TCFD is a bit out of date, to be frank. It's, mm-hmm. you know, there, are, there are other reporting fr- frameworks. There's the Climate Action 100 Plus benchmark, uh, another one that I can, I can send you a link to, that are better designed. So TCFD is just really, you know, minimum kind of standard at this point in time, and it's really frustrating for Australians and Australian companies to be kind of held back by an ideological opposition to, to legislating for this. So Australian law is not serving the interests of corporations and society as well as it could. It could do a better Mm -hmm. job by requiring mandatory disclosure. Um, And again, building on that, there's two questions here that I think are connected and build on what you've just said. So there might be some broader reflections. Firstly, how is the lack of government leadership on climate change going to impact Australia's transition to a safe pace climate-wise? And secondly, will clearer policies and regulation help boards and directors to take action? I think they're probably connected and connected to what you've just said. We're getting to really to a crunch point. So the lack of political leadership in Australia, for every day that we delay taking some of these actions that we need to take, ideally, you know, you have a, a just and orderly transition from a high-carbon economy to a low-carbon economy. But every day that we delay, the chances of just and orderly diminish. We will transition one way or another to a low-carbon economy because the entire world will demand it of us and because there will be no market for our Mm. emissions-intensive export products. So, you know, there just won't be a market for coal. There won't be a market for oil and gas or the market will be very, very small at some point in the foreseeable future. We're really behind the game here. Uh, We should have been looking at transitioning these industries for a long period of time and our societies, our communities and and our companies will not be served well by, by this delay. So we will transition. There is an inevitability about mm. energy transition. It, it will happen. It must happen. But the justness and the orderliness of it is put at risk for every further day of delay. Mm. And that is political leadership that is lacking. It's that level of coordination that is required that can only be delivered 
by the state. It can only be delivered by the government. You know, it is not the role of corporations. I mean, corporations are in many respects or a a big part of the sector is is well ahead of government. Then there's the other part of the sector that's holding government back and almost, you know, holding them hostage in in certain, certain respects. The level of coordination, the level of policy and planning required, it is the role of government. Is the mm-hmm. role of the state to do that. And what we're seeing now is that subnational governments, so our state governments, are stepping in and doing some of that work, but the federal government is 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 just nowhere to be seen. And it and it's a real shame and, and it and it will hurt our society ultimately. I was gonna say great thanks, but not really any thanks at all and no greatness there about anything that you've just said. Unfortunately, everything you said was fabulous, but you know, it's all not good news, is it? It's pretty grim. I mean, but, you know, Australia is increasingly an outlier on this. You know, Mm -hmm. we were ranked last in the OECD on our our climate targets because, you know, we're a a wealthy, prosperous country with a high standard of living and an emissions-intensive economy. We've got a really educated uh, population, but we're hugely part of the problem. You know, that that gap Mm -hmm. between... What we should be doing and what we are doing is, you know, it's just extraordinary in uh, in Australia, and I mean the rest of the world is is, is taking notice at this point yeah. in time. I regularly hear from colleagues uh, in other parts of the world saying, like, "What on earth are you guys doing?" <laughs> What on earth are we doing? It's an excellent question. So our final question, and again, I think we've touched on this, but it's actually a nice way to close it out, I think, in a way. It comes from Alicia Rathbone. What are your tips about how we go about introducing this topic and having a genuine discussion on impact for our organisations? Well, uh, great question. And look, again, I I keep saying this, it feels like a bit of a cop-out, but I think it it depends a bit on the organisation. I think... One of the things to be mindful of is that even though this is it is a crisis and it feels overwhelming, is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Or there might be sprints within the marathon, but this is this will be the work of our lives as directors. This is this issue is not going anywhere. We will have to keep building competence and confidence and capability and relationships across the term of our careers as directors. Boardroom conversations are always like this, right? Bringing people along bringing people, you know, on the, on the journey with you. So I would say, look, depending on the kind, of, the kind of business and the challenges that you face, you could work on staging the conversation, on, on just getting a sense of people's capability and confidence. You can look at a board kind of questionnaire or, or mm. um, skills audit and, and go from there. Seek external advice. We're fortunate in Australia to have kind of a community of climate scientists and and boffins who, in my experience, pretty eager to jump in and and assist in delivering information to people who have the power to make decisions to improve our situation. I think so there's those internal uh, board kind of conversations and then moving along that journey of having a process to manage climate risk and engage in uh, advocacy uh, externally with um, or listen to stakeholders and then go to government and, and trade association stakeholders. There's lots of things you can do. This will be the work of your entire board career and there are people out there who are eager to help and certainly, you know, ACCR is, is, is very keen uh, to assist. So if there's anything we can do, please get in touch. We will we'll gladly assist. 
What a beautiful way to close us out. So, folks, we will make sure um, ACCR's details are in the show notes as well. As always, if you're out walking, listening to this and are like, I can't manage the phone and also check the show notes, just go to the website. All of the links um, as well as transcripts of the episodes will be on the website so you can just go back to it later. Bryn, amazing. Thank you so much. I can already tell from the feedback that's been piling into my both my text and my inbox. We're recording this straight after the event and people have just so grateful and invigorated, I think, by the conversation that we've just had. So thank you for sharing with the Take On Board community today. I know, how did you just frame it a moment ago? This is the task of our lifetime as board directors and having this sort of information at our hand will, I know that people in the Take On Board community are up to the task. So thanks for giving us the tools to make that happen. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.